Nancy Hua is the CEO and co-founder of Aptimize, which simplifies A-B testing for mobile applications. She previously worked on algorithmic trading in the financial industry. Nancy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Hello. Let's talk about Aptimize. You do A-B testing for apps. Can you give an example of how a customer would use Aptimize? Um, yeah, so a lot of our customers like um, Hotel Tonight or Trulia or Capital One, some of these companies, still use us to make changes instantly to their native mobile experiences on Android or iOS and send the different versions to different people to see what converts better or what gets them to re-engage with the app more. So it's all about figuring out what the optimal user experience on mobile is. And how are most of your clients A-B testing prior to starting to use Aptimize? Oh, I don't think they are. I mean, they're, so most of them are just, let's see what they'll do. They'll probably make changes to their app um, according to their deployment schedule, which is usually a month to several months. And in between deployments, they'll just observe their analytics to see what the impact is on their customers. And then they'll just kind of compare <laughs> if stuff is going up or down. But I think it's really hard because every deployment, there's a ton of stuff that you squeeze in there. And then it's very difficult to see what, what thing is having the impact that you're observing or if it's just seasonality or something like that. Does Optimize typically get used by companies that are doing this batch deployment system or are there also companies that do continuous integration or continuous deployment that also use Aptimize? Um They use us often to enable them to do more continuous deployment because we let them um, do feature flagging and stage rollouts of different features. There's some like primitive ways to do that that Google is trying to enforce, but you can't really roll back the features or do a lot of stuff. So we let you have a lot more control. Um, this is more how advanced apps are, are operating. Like they don't really have this deployment schedule that everyone else is usually operating off of. They um, they try to release much more frequently and just move towards a more agile way of deployment on mobile, which is pretty hard to do unless you have a framework like Optimize. So you kind of use us to um, flag all your features and control when you're ready to send it to a subset of your customers. And then you can also roll it back if it needs more work. Can you explain how the software of Aptimize works at a technical lower level? Mm, yeah, what I usually tell people <laughs> is uh, our SDK, like it, it spiders through your app and figures out all of the visual elements so that you can go onto our website and make those changes instantly. And also, um, if you're using us to basically manage different versions of different features or um, control who gets which feature, then you can um, integrate our... Uh, like you put these little tags in those places so that you can use our dashboard to roll out those features to different audiences. And in our past interview, you said, I like the idea of eliminating developer time as much as possible. You said the vast majority of what we think we need developers for are not what we need developers for. What are the things that we actually need developers for, and how does Optimize cut down the time that developers spend on other stuff? I think you need developers for like pretty complex logic or um, figuring out how different systems talk to each other and are organized, um, more architectural things, um, things that are just like front-end engineering of layouts and stuff and how different flows work. I mean, usually that's pretty, that type of logic 
a, you know, you don't really need to know how to program to figure out. So empowering people who don't want to code or don't like even developers who know how to code. I don't know. There's just a lot that I think is uh, front loaded there that doesn't need to be. If we make that more abstract and empower the people to do it without having to learn all of this, all these different frameworks and tools, then I think that's going to open up a lot of stuff and also make development a lot faster. Does that shift a lot of the work to designers? Um, I think it it just has a really equalizing effect. I mean, it's just like how any technology does this. Like initially when you only people who are really expert in whatever, like I remember when we first started using computers, I was like using DOS prompts to like do everything. And I don't know, like that's just not the case anymore. Like anyone can use a computer to do anything. You can do some pretty advanced stuff. Like if I wanted to send an email in the past, it was like pretty involved. And now it's not like that anymore. So I think it lets everyone just do their jobs easier. Um, I think um, it also lets developers do their jobs a lot easier too. If they're not fussing over all of the different ways you have to deal with uh, the flow of your app and on all these different devices and stuff like that, if you can offload some of that work to optimize and just let us handle it, then that's a lot easier. But yeah, we do empower um, designers, product managers, um, mobile marketers to do a lot, a lot of stuff without having to you know, get it put on a development roadmap. Can you talk more about the software platform? Like you can track metrics without extra programming or tagging. And I'm very curious about how Optimize achieves, achieves that. Um, yeah. So let's see. It's, uh, we can see anything that the app is sending to the operating system. So if you already tagged something with a third-party SDK that you're trying to track, like if you're using Flurry or Google Analytics or... Um, Mixpanel, um, Omniture, then we will automate, automatically pick that up and see that you're trying to track a particular analytic on some event and we'll also just track it as well. So you don't need to re-tag everything to implement yet another analytics framework that lets you track everything. Like we just have all your data in one place and then without you doing anything. And then we also um, allow you to use our visual interface to walk through the app and track new things that you haven't tracked before because it's pretty common that people like you don't know all the things that you want to track in advance or you can mess up the implementation because mobile QA is a pretty unsolved problem in a lot of cases too so if you accidentally didn't track it for whatever reason um, you can go through our app and track you know swipes gestures uh, uh, button pushes views um, using that editor I think mobile QA is not the only aspect of mobile development that seems kind of broken the current model of development is like you have siloed iOS people and siloed Android people and siloed, siloed web people. Does this seem unsustainable to you? Because this seems like a really terrible waste of <laughs> developer time in the long term. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that we can address this. I think um, right now, if you're really fixated on your mobile strategy, then you don't, you don't really have an option other than to do... <laughs> to do that because like um, the reason that you're investing in all these native experiences is because it's just better and native. I mean, that's just how all these um, operating systems are designed to be developed on like native development. If you um, want to do a more lightweight strategy, usually indie developers, they'll use like, well, obviously HTML5 is the first thing you tried to use, or you can, you know, just make a web app instead, or you can um, use some of these other technologies I was looking at. There's like, um, they're for like smaller 
smaller companies <laughs> probably try. I'm not sure if anyone's actually made anything on React yet, but I saw that they finally released their Android thing. And then there's um, Ionic. Uh, and there's, I don't know, there's a bunch of different options there to explore. But that's more for, um, some of them are very customized for games. I don't know. You just kind of have to, like, see where you are in your strategy. If it's, like, you're still proving out the value of mobile for you, or if you're really, really resource-constrained, then it's a pretty good alternative. Or you might just want to make, you know, a web app. So you have to think about what are your goals for for mobile. Yeah, we actually just finished a week of shows about React and Facebook did just release that React Native for Android. And they also did it for iOS a while ago. Um, like in the past, we've seen these different types of like write it in JavaScript and then magically click a button and it ports it to iOS or Android. These things tend to seem kind of janky when you actually try to use them. Like it just makes some app with some web views and it's it's not really uh, pr- like productive enough. Um, do you think there is the potential for an actual solution like React or um, I think you mentioned Ionic, uh, these other things where you could just write write it once and then have a solid port to the native platforms? Like, is this an achievable future? Yeah, definitely. Why not? I think it just takes a really long time. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. I mean, in, like... Well, I don't know what's going to happen with HTML and so, but in like twenty years or whatever, like HTML could it, it's going to improve and it's going to be a lot better. Um, it's just always going to be behind like everything else. So it just depends on where you are. If you want to be really cutting edge with stuff, then like you know you're probably going to still develop natively. But if you're cool with how they're doing everything on HTML five, then you know maybe that's awesome. You can take advantage of of the simplicity of that. I think there's just always trade-offs, so it depends on your strategy. Um, I, think it all, I think about it a lot for Optimize, too, because it really informs our strategy, because um, I'm really in tune with how they're, they're thinking about simplifying that whole development experience, because I think it's way too painful, and it's, it's just about how, <laughs> how you want to prioritize like ease of development versus your customer experience. Um, I'd love for you to have the best of both worlds. So we'd, like, I do want us to bet on React and some of these technologies in a bunch of ways, um, but I'm still looking through all of them to see which one is actually like most in tune with what our customers are going to do. Um, because we we work with like bigger customers, I don't think they're they're going to be using any of these anytime soon. Um, but but with the indie developers, I think they're always the first ones to to try any of this stuff, and we'll see how how it proves. What in what types of ways would you make bets? Like, um, would you just sit around and plan about it, and then like sort of oh, settle no, no, no. onto something? Yeah, you can like we can easily integrate with it. Um, we can also make it easier to like any of these. The stuff that we do isn't like fundamentally about any like we our our value is about letting you um, operate a lot faster. So we could still let you um, control which features different tar- types of your users are. Are, are on. I mean, we could even go into web. Like, I don't know. There's all, which I don't think is strategically a good move. But I mean, we can do all of these things. We can have our editor work with any of these platforms. And I mean, it's still just very similar. Like, um, the value prop is still just like making it even even easier for you to figure out what your customers want and like um, respond to user data in real time, and also have a lot more control over your user experience for different customers. Why would it be dangerous to go to the web? Um, oh, I don't think it's dangerous. I think it's just kind of a waste of time because I think web is going to die. <laughs> um, I think, mm. like, uh, I mean, mobile is going to be much bigger than web. I also think web is technologically a pretty solved and easier problem. 
<laughs> so there are just other options on web. There's like, uh, where are they? There's like that visual website optimizer thing. Uh, Optimizely has their GUI thing. I don't know. There's just so much stuff on web already that you can try that I don't think it hasn't. And we partner with um, uh, Qubit on web because they they're in a lot of really big companies <laughs> that have a really strong web presence. Um, mm. So I don't know. With, with that type of thing, I just think it's just not strategically aligned with what Optimize is all about, which is making mobile innovation easier. So um, I'm, for stuff like that, that's not really up our alley in terms of our technological advantages. Um, I'm, I much prefer to partner. Interesting. I'd like to talk some about Y Combinator. You graduated from Y Combinator in spring 2013. What did Y Combinator offer you and optimize that you couldn't get elsewhere? Um, so I think Y Combinator is one of the strongest networks in the Valley. Uh, at the time, I was like, well, I already know a lot of these people because a lot of them are MIT people. <laughs> and I already knew a lot of them, but they all still really strongly recommended Y Combinator. And now a lot of my best friends are Y Combinator founders. So I think that was awesome. Um, everyone really has this attitude of paying it forward and helping each other. And I love to do that too. So I don't know. It gives me the warm fuzzies. <laughs> is, it, is it worth giving up the equity for in exchange for that uh, network? Because it seems like you could get the network in indirect ways. Yeah, that's really exactly the question I was debating at the beginning because it's a lot of your company. We gave Y Combinator 7% of our company. And seven percent for one hundred and twenty k, right? Uh, well, honestly, it was even less because they gave they gave us twenty or twenty five k or something, and then the rest of the money oh. was from um, what they were calling at the time the YCVC fund, which actually is just separate, like <laughs> it's just separate money that we got that we also had to give equity for, um, but later at a different valuation, um, much a, a much better valuation than the seven percent valuation, the Y Combinator, which was I don't know whatever seven percent of X equals 20K or whatever it was is equal to. Um, and I don't know. I think it's worth it because it made fundraising a lot easier and also just the amount of like help I've gotten from the network. It's really hard to put a value on that. So I don't know when it becomes not worth it anymore, but it's probably honestly... So how, how can I trust that you're telling the truth since now yeah, you're, you got you've been uh, co-opted... You've been co-opted into the Y Combinator well, Kool-Aid Club. Well, um, I think an interesting, uh, maybe, like, yeah, an interesting data set is the people who do Y Combinator multiple times, um, because they probably already have the network, right, because they already did it before, mm. but then they still do it repeatedly. So with that, they must be really valuing, like, the whole demo day experience and also, like, the whole experience of doing... Um, all the dinners or the potential of future partnership, like becoming a partner. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I don't know. There are people who do a- <laughs> they're marketing. So I don't know. They, they're getting a lot out of it. I think, I don't know. I don't really think too much about if I'm going to do another company after optimize because I'm so fixated on optimize, but maybe I would do sure. Y Combinator again. I'm not sure. We'll have to see what it looks like at that point. Is there a power law distribution for the worth of different accelerators? Like is Y Combinator exponentially worth more worthwhile than whatever the second place accelerator is yes <laughs> but again i'm totally biased i don't know i mean i don't know that much about the other different accelerators i'm sure they're mm. um they all have their unique virtu- virtues i know that 500 startups is really strong internationally and y Combinator. um i don't i 
I mean, I'm sure it's one of their emphases since Sam Altman has like through the roof ambition. Um, but you know, 500 startups started that way really early on. So if you're an international company, maybe it makes more sense because you don't want to relocate to Silicon Valley or something like that. Um, I think overall, like, uh, you want to look at the network of the accelerator though, because I think that's where most of the benefit comes from so that you have other people that you can just call on and they'll immediately be really friendly and nice to you. What is Sam Altman's most ambitious, uh, op- optimal future for the oh, I mean, you have to ask Sam. I have no idea. Like all the things that, like, what is he not imagining? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think Sam is, uh, just, really strong, like in terms of vision. Um, yeah, when I talk with, I guess any of the Y Combinator people, I get really inspired. So I'm sure he's thinking that he's going to invest in stuff that's like way riskier and also, um, probably have a huge influence over how angel investing and VC works and totally reshape that ecosystem to his own image. And I like that he's been very decisively anti-becoming a series Series A company. Like he's like, why Combinator does not want to do Series A? Mm. We just want to do, you know, we just want to throw out small, small, you know, uh, high high upside potential, high volatility bets. I mean, that's the, in the most recent interview I heard of him. I was like, that's that's cool. Like you're you are sticking to your knitting. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him to move into a bunch of other stuff. He's Mm. Yeah, I think he can do anything. <laughs> Very interesting. What are the technical ways that your engineering organization benefited from being in Y Combinator? Oh, I'm not sure there were technical ways. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we. There's more about like strategic funding stuff? Yeah. We just. Uh, maybe there were. In that, I did have a conversation with Eric Florenzano, who's one of the other YC alums about how he implemented his own. Because there's other, there was another thing called Clutch.io, which I think is shut down now, but it's at least open source. So we did talk with him about how he implemented that. Um, so Clutch.io was one of the A-B testing for mobile options that existed before Optimize started. And he, we were attempting to use this before we started Optimize um, because it wasn't like I just wanted to start this like mobile optimization framework on day one. I looked at what else was out there and was hoping to use one of them and I remember talking with him about this. So I think that had some influence over, because he made a lot of technical decisions that were different from what we ended up making. So um, that was probably a useful conversation. But again, that was a network thing. I think our main thing talking with the partners was more like the trajectory of the growth that we were going to um, aim for during the YC experience so that we had a good-looking graph on demo day. Right, the good-looking graph. So what did your graph look like? Pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I think all graphs on Demo Day, like they do their job, so they make sure that you have growth that looks pretty good. Um, I think ours was around, uh, well, you know, I didn't, this didn't even make it to the Demo Day deck because our Demo Day deck was really, really slimmed down. You had to like cut everything to just get the key message across. But um, our number was like number of our users, users that were on the, that were on the mm. SDK. It's interesting. I think most SDK companies... It's crafty. Yeah, most SDK companies um, have a pretty good-looking graph there because, you know, it's really easy. You just make sure other people install you. I don't know if the VCs have really caught on to this yet. Maybe they have. <laughs> I don't usually show that graph because I don't, you know, it's one of the many vanity metrics that, like, you don't really care about in terms of the actual business, but we do look at it because right. it does affect us technologically. It affects our the load on our servers and we want to make sure that we are 
like one of our metrics that we do look at is like dollar per that number so that I know that per users users we're not like gonna just suddenly right. like have this you know hundred grand per month Amazon bill or even worse I guess if they had because a lot of our users have you know tens of millions of monthly active users so yeah I want to you could have used the the Amazon like the AWS uh, expenditure as your uh, demo day graph. <laughs> I guess that's the wrong graph. That's like the irony graph. Yeah. Here's how much we spent. Um, so, okay, so we're planning to do a week of shows on Y Combinator in the oh, future. Cool. Um, and what what do you think are the best questions to ask around engineering uh, d- during that week? Because I think, like, you know, being being in an accelerator and hacking away at a project seems like a very unique context to be doing engineering in, or maybe I'm mistaken, but I, I'm I'm curious what you think would be the best topics to cover? Hmm. Um, probably prioritization of engineering tasks. Because I think, okay, one thing that Y Combinator does really well is it makes you focus. And there's always infinity, you know, things to do on the development side. You never have enough time. Like, you, sure, your engineering team is awesome, but they're just never going to get to everything that's on the roadmap because there's just like infinity stuff and you always have more and the more users you have, the worse it gets because now they've got requests and they've got issues that they're finding with your your product. And um, you also have like all of the stuff that you want to eventually refactor that will you ever get there? Unclear. <laughs> um, so I think that prioritization, that's like really the thing that you should be spending a lot of time on in the beginning before you just dive in and code. Um, I think that's what we realized because it's very easy to get in the zone where you're like, oh, I'm super productive. I'm like refactoring this thing and I'm cleaning this up and blah, blah, blah. But like, honestly, um, when you think about it through the lens of Y Combinator and what they really force you to do is think like, is this a thing that is going to affect us on demo day positively? (laughs) Like, is this going to make our pitch look better? And usually, right. no. <laughs> usually what you're doing is, like, mm-hmm. not a thing that will be useful. Or, like, cleaning up this UX. Like, y- that really makes you feel, like, um, understand, like, what UX is most important to get right and what UX is okay to, like, it's more bottom of funnel. So, like, who cares? <laughs> when they get there, they're already committed to your product. So they can have a little more pain, maybe. Interesting. So this week on Software Engineering Daily is about women in engineering. Uh, so we should talk some about that topic, but first, I guess you know I I know some women in engineering they totally dislike this framing because the women in tech issue maybe distracts from the fact that these women are actually doing work in tech and they have to spend all this time or they or they are uh, they you know other people ask them this question so they have to spend time discussing women in tech rather than the tech itself which maybe is counterproductive to the actual mission of trying to change things or I don't know like what do you what do you think about this is it actually important to talk about the women in tech issue explicitly huh interesting do you understand what I'm saying yeah I think it's pretty um so for issues in general I think that as long as that issue exists you can't ignore it so as long as racism exists, you can't ignore race. As long as sexism exists, you can't ignore gender. Um, so, yeah, I don't think, I think it's, it's in some ways irresponsible to 
just wash your hands of the thing and be like, this is nothing to do with me. I'm going to like live my life heads down. Um, because that's, oh, I don't know. You're just saying like, I refuse to take responsibility for this topic for other people. Um, because it's not enough of a problem for me or I figured out how to handle it for myself that, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, which is a very seductive line of thought <laughs> because you do have other things that you're thinking about for yourself. Um, so the thing that makes me more inclined to talk about it is thinking about other people that are struggling with something similar and uh, how I have to be responsible for them as well. Like I have to try to make sure that they um, don't, yeah, that there's not a ton of disservice done to them because they can't handle it the way I've been handling it or that they don't have my privileges. Um, Are women marginalized in the field of software engineering? Interesting. Uh, there's definitely disadvantages. There's probably in some ways advantages. Or I don't know if that's just me looking at the like the bright side of everything. Um, what do I think are the disadvantages? Well, I think in every like human interaction, um, if you're different, it can be hard. <laughs> so if you're un- unique and that you're like the one woman in the conversation or the one woman in the room, um, it's just going to be very difficult for you to escape how the human brain naturally pattern matches. So I'm very reluctant to like place any blame on anyone here because I think you know, women and men are very conscious of uh, the status quo and when things deviate from that. So women know that they're different when they're different and men know that the women are different when they're different and the same for everybody. So I don't think it's really anyone's fault. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, like when, even when I see like, uh, when I'm interviewing an engineer who's very different because they're a woman or because of their race or because of whatever, like, I know that they're different. I know that I haven't interviewed, like, 10 other people. Like, like my five other interviews were, like, this other profile, now this other person. And I'm sure that I have these, like, subconscious biases. So um, the way I try to deal with that is through having a scorecard that's really systematic. And so I know that, like, okay, I'm evaluating them according to this criteria that I've already set in advance before meeting them. So I'm not just, like, inventing new shit up on the fly to, like, judge them on. Um, but, yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Like, I don't know, usually... When, uh, let's see, what, what would happen? Um, well, I think I'm, I'm pretty, so how do I counter? Like, usually people, I think when they meet me, they expect me to not be the CEO. They expect me to be maybe a marketing person of a fashion startup or something like that. <laughs> and Recruiter. Yeah, you know, they expect me to be different. <laughs> and I just kind of like very immediately, well, I don't know, maybe they don't expect me to be a fashion startup person because I'm pretty unfashionable. That's like me being very flattering to myself. But I don't know what they think I am. But like, they're they're often surprised, you know, and then, um, but I think they adjust pretty quickly. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know if women have like the hardest time out of everyone out there, but it's really hard to compare like different people's level of marginalization. I'm sure like, men suffer to some degree as well, but it's just like, they don't feel like they can talk about it because... Did you, did you feel prejudice when you were interacting with investors raising money? Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it happens with everybody. So what would happen with investors? Uh, I don't think it's like deliberate on their part. I think everyone is, you know, no one thinks they're a bad person. Everyone's like tries to be good. Everyone tries to be nice. And, um, but what would, what would I observe? And I don't think these are really bad, like... 
that bad. So I don't really feel like I deserve to complain about most of this stuff because we had a really good time fundraising. <laughs> um, but okay. um, a few things that happened are like, I don't know, like occasionally. So usually I did not bring my co-founder with me because you're supposed to just have one person focus on it. And honestly, he's like not great at fundraising. <laughs> so, but occasionally they, they would want to meet him or like, I don't know, he'd just be there for whatever reason. And um, I would notice that people would really look at him the whole time or like direct all the questions towards him. And after talking with him about it, he like never even picked up on that because he doesn't even make eye contact. So he doesn't know that they're like looking at him. And and I'm like, why are you looking at him so much when he clearly is really uncomfortable looking at you? And I'm the one that's like talking and trying to engage with you. But I think it's just, I don't know, people are used to talking with men probably. I don't think they're doing it on purpose and he never really even noticed it. And I don't, I didn't really even let it bother me too because on the scale of things that could happen, um, it's not that bad. And I think I just tended to like not bring him anyway. So it didn't come up as much. Okay. And like, how do you think the things are going to change in the future? Like, uh, pre- like presumably there, you know, there is this degree of prejudice. Uh, I guess, you know, in some ways it's an advantage, in some ways it's a disadvantage. Um, I mean, or maybe, maybe you see this, uh, prejudice as immutable, uh, and I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe there is a you know a positive version of the prejudice that could potentially manifest, or I don't know. Like, how do you see things changing in the future, or uh, you know, if we should try to change it, what are the ways that we should try to invoke that change? Hmm. Um, I think. I think the future is that all of these superficial properties of a person are going to be so malleable and fluid because people are going to be able to adjust a lot of this stuff so easily that it's not going to be a factor anymore. (laughs) Like, I think people are going to be able to change. Like, this is, I don't know how many years, maybe this is like 100 years off or something, but people are going to be able to change gender pretty easily that's my view or like maybe everyone's gonna be like in their virtual sim identity and so you won't even know anything about them but I think all that stuff is just not gonna matter anymore because anyone can just be anything that they want at any moment so who the heck cares about any of that and it's more about their personality their values um I think how it changes is through setting an example and people being really successful so it's pretty cool there are a lot of female billionaires in China (laughs) who are female right and they're like yeah. And I think they're pretty kick-ass and there are like female CEOs. And the one we always think about is Marissa Mayer probably, but there's also Elizabeth Holmes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty awesome too. So I think that's when, you know, we start to adjust a lot of things. And, um, uh, I think it's just going to happen if we all just try to be awesome and try to live according to what we want to do and try to outperform our potential then it's so so this this future of like you know gender is like a modular gradient uh that's interesting you you know there's an interesting quote in your blog you said you have friends aged 18 to 70 and you don't think about their ages do you see gender the same way like are like I, i know you've said that you have advantages to uh you know being of a different uh being of a different gender than the prototypical uh, male startup CEO, but how do you see gender? Like, are you gender blind? Um, no, I definitely am really aware of it, but I do view it as like a pretty arbitrary and temporary thing. (laughs) Like, I think, I mean, I don't really, 
I don't know how I feel about my own gender because I don't think I think about it too much. It's not like I really wish I were another gender or I'm really happy with my gender. I don't know how I would feel if I woke up tomorrow and I was a man. I'd probably just be like, oh, now I need to adjust to this new thing that I am and not be very like, I hate this. I don't think I would hate it. I think I'd be okay with it. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's not true for like, I don't know. I have no idea how I would feel. But there are people who, I mean, I have friends who are transitioning from whatever gender to whatever gender. Um, and I think it's, I don't know. It's just like not a big deal. They're still very similar to fundamentally to the person I know. And it's like really weird and interesting to hear about their experiences doing that. Um, and I think I learn a lot from all of it, but it's not, it's not really like their what, core. What are the commonalities between between the, those people that decide to, to change gender? What are the commonalities? Like, what what, what are they all feeling uh, to such a degree that they feel they they want to make this dramatic change? Um, I think so. There, there's two good friends that I have who've done it um, or are in the process of doing it. Um, one of them I knew from MIT, so I've known him now for like I don't know more than a dozen years and then the other one I knew from Silicon Valley uh so I think they both really and they both they went so I know them they went different ways like one was a woman is now a man the other one's um a man transitioning to woman and uh they both just really hated their original bodies like a lot (laughs) and I knew that like um I remember with both of them, one of the first conversations we ever had was like about how they did not like their body and they were like, you know, just really uncomfortable with their appearance. And, um, at some point I think they were just like, whatever, I'm going to make my body look the way I want it to look. And, you know, that's the action they took. I don't think I ever experienced anything like that. Cause I don't know. I'm very lucky. I probably, I always kind of liked the way I looked or didn't care a lot about it <laughs> or I don't know it was just like very secondary to the other things I was fixated on so I but I could see how like you know once you uh are in a position to be able to do something about it it would make you feel a lot better because yeah if you really hate something about yourself then you should try to change it how can men be uh better allies in the movement towards towards gender equality or, or more gender equality. So for example, like part, part of my motivation for doing this week is like, uh, I've worked in a number of engineering organizations where I've seen women be marginalized. And it's like frustrating to me as an engineer. Cause I'm just like, can we just like get this shit done? And we honestly cannot get the shit done because there's some m- marginalization, whether it's subconscious or conscious. And it's like, holy crap, this is so pervasive, I wish it were not a problem so we could be more productive as an organization. So, like, you know, what can a male in an organization, uh, in a software engineering position, do? Hmm. I think um, the times I've been most moved by how other people behaved, just observing what they did, was when they showed, like, a lot of compassion for the situation, when they were really like their actions just showed that they were really trying to put themselves in the other person's shoes. And, um, they, like, I think that, that necessitates having, or yeah, it's like, it requires having a really, um, open mind and, uh, a strong degree of empathy for the other person and just being really sensitive to all of that and not being like, 
judging or really quick to, um, you know, like just do whatever is easiest or something like that. But when, like, I think when you have a lot of compassion, then the situation becomes a lot more nuanced and you're more able to uh, behave in a way that doesn't make anyone feel bad (laughs) or, you know, judged. Um, So yeah, I think maybe to be more compassionate, you have to like genuinely want to understand the other person and you can do some original research and you can ask them questions and stuff like that. And I think that'll just make the whole, whole situation like open up in a way that can really change that dynamic. Um, Because the way (laughs) the flip side that I've observed when it's pretty toxic and um, uncomfortable is when you're not really open to that new information. You don't really want to know more about it and you're not very <laughs> like compassionate towards them. It's kind of like their fault somehow or it's not your fault at least. And like that perspective of having this like um, the idea that there's this blame or like whatever, that's just not a very productive way of viewing things usually. Like you want to be compassionate and think about how all the different parties are, where, where they're all coming from. And no one really thinks they're a bad person. People think they're good, you know, and they want to be good people. Um, so if you can think about that from their view and be like, yeah, they're not trying to be a dick or a bitch or whatever. <laughs> they're trying to do what they view is the right thing. So how do I understand that? I think overall that's going to be really good for everyone. Um, but I don't know. Were you like looking for a more specific thing? I think it's just more like, you know, for if, so if you have compassion for someone, you're asking questions and stuff and try to like understand their lives. So <laughs> I would like say to yeah. do that, um, try to figure out like what their challenges are, what their goals are, um, like for everybody in, in your company. And then you'll be a lot yeah. more e- able to communicate and navigate these different scenarios. Right. Now I think, I think that's a good point. So the last time that we talked, uh, we did an interview, uh, which I'll put in the show notes. Uh, you mentioned that you left, high frequency trading because you weren't becoming awesome at making other people more awesome. <laughs> and so I'm curious if now that Optimize has been around for almost three years, can you say that you've made the world more awesome? Yeah, I'm, that's the main part that makes me feel good. <laughs> like that gives me the warm fuzzies. So when I see our customers um, learn a lot about their apps and really adapt their mobile strategies and when they feel like they're kicking ass that makes me feel awesome and they'll like you know they'll give because a lot of them are really high profile mobile leaders and they'll be asked to speak at conferences and stuff and when they're talking about why their app is so amazing and wins all these awards and like has such good stats if it's like occasionally i'll see it they'll send over the deck or whatever like there's their slide will have like somewhere on it um optimized and we're just one thing that contributes to why they're so awesome <laughs> but that makes me feel really good like they're doing it all on their own it's it, it's their ideas and it's their um creativity and initiative that allows them to do all of this but um optimize gives them more leverage so that they can execute on their ideas more effectively and that makes me feel good i think that um inventing technology that does stuff like that is what can help me move the needle on human innovation and that's ultimately my mission how has the sense of engineering at Optimize been different from whatever sense of engineering you had in high frequency trading? Um, hmm. Well, it's totally different. In high frequency trading, it's very much about um, uh, optimizing whatever's necessary for your strategy to work and outcompete the competition. In at Optimize, it's about um, whatever gives our customers. Uh, the most 
effective experience so that they can most achieve their goals. So for us, it's much more about the customers and what they're asking for and what we know is going to make them a lot more performance and productive. Whereas, so it's a lot more about like, it's a service thing. It's more customer driven. Whereas in algorithmic trading, it's like, I don't know, competition driven. Mm, interesting. Um, do you think there's like in, in the uh, high frequency trading space, is there uh, less of a thought about uh, the macro implications of the engineering that they're doing, or like uh, you know how how do how do high frequency trading engineers think about the the bigger picture? Like do do they do they not think at all about uh, you know? Yeah, I didn't think about it too much. Okay. <laughs> I think what I thought about was. If, if it was big picture, it was thinking about how it would be very difficult for someone else to replicate what I was doing, so I should do it to force them to, to up their game or die. Because, like, you want to you make your competition die in high-frequency trading. So, like, if you can do something that um, will force them to have to adjust, uh, then you want to do it. So that's, like, as high level as I would get there. Mm, interesting. So I want to close with a question uh, we had a conversation last time I saw you. Uh, do you believe that we're living in a simulation? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, so what I, is the nature of that simulation? Well, I don't know. So that's why I have a hard time because I'm not sure what we really even mean by simulation. Um, I do think that uh, reality is not very cut and dry. Like, I have this friend where we have these, for me, amazing conversations. I don't know what he feels about them. But, but like, he, he feels like the only thing that is uh, self-evident, you know, he's, like, kind of Descartes, Descartian, probably. And, you know, it's like, oh, I can, it's everything that I perceive that's real. And I'm like, you know, that's not real. <laughs> like, I know <laughs> even less than Descartes is what I'm saying. Because, I mean, it's clear to me, like, you can feel anything. It just... A result of everything that's going on in your brain from all these chemicals and stuff and you can it's illusory like you can imagine that all these things happen to you that you kind of remember but really they're not necessarily real like you can have totally fake memories and that happens all the time and you just tell yourself these stories about what you think is real but it's really not so I don't think you can even trust your own perceptions at all um, but I don't know what do, what is your your theory on the simulation yeah I mean I think that we're the highest probability is that like it's you know the future somewhere and like we are in somebody else's video game like we're probably not even real we're probably even not attached to any organism we're probably uh like you know uh, autonomous agents like we're we're enemies or cohorts in some video game like somebody's simulation somebody's inception type artificial uh reality simulation we're just like spun up artificial intelligence instances somewhere because why not because like you know if everybody in the future is sitting in a vat somewhere and has a simulation somewhere and for each person that has a simulation somewhere there is n uh autonomous um artificial intelligence entities uh giving them a convincing simulation then that's that's n times the number of people that there actually are sitting in vats and so if we are either one of the people sitting in vats or one of the artificial autonomous entities, probabilistically, we would be one of the autonomous artificial entities. And 
the thing is, like, the future that looks like it's naturally going to germinate in our reality looks something like the VAT thing. I mean, you know, probably we'll be old people. Like, when we are old people, we're going to be sitting in hospice care with an IV drip and an Oculus Rift over our eyes with some simulated scenario. And chances are, like, there's going to be a lot of autonomy. I don't know. Maybe, this is, like, totally crazy <laughs> to you. Um, I don't know. Whoever I tell this to, they're like, okay, cool. Now I can know never to associate with Jeff again. This is absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, like... Um, I have a lot of hypotheses, but I mean, it doesn't really affect anything. So I think I just talk about it when I'm totally at leisure, like, and I have nothing else that I can productively do at the moment. Because I don't know, we still have to make this reality really awesome. I have another hypothesis that we can literally never conceive, that it's inconceivable to us what the real reality is like because of nature of reality. <laughs> well, I don't know. I have a thing about like how our brains could possibly work that it's just not our brains are not able to handle real reality but i don't know i don't know who cares <laughs> yeah okay cool well uh nancy hua you have things that are based in reality to get back to <laughs> so um i'll let you i'll let you go um it's been great talking to you as always and uh thanks for coming on to software engineering daily thanks jeff see ya yeah all right see you later